At Keeley Companies, culture sets them apart. They are dedicated to the safety, the well-being, and the career growth of every employee, which they refer to affectionately as the Keelians. Recently, they launched a new cultural pillar called Keeley One, focusing on diversity and inclusion. Senior Project Manager Henry Isaacs says that understanding everyone is unique and different is critical. We have to recognize our individual differences and that everyone deserves to be included and have their voice heard. For Keeley, this focus on diversity and inclusion has been a huge morale booster. It makes people more excited to come into work, which correlates to greater retention and enhances their overall culture. Now, when establishing your culture of diversity and inclusion, Henry has some great advice for us. Have an open mind and be willing to step out of our comfort zone. That's number one. Number two, take the time to truly learn, to seek wisdom around different cultures, different races, and different religions. Do the work, in other words. And then thirdly, reach out to someone different from you and be intentional in having an open and honest conversation with them. End the sentences with question marks. It's great advice from Henry, and I want to thank my friends from Keeley Companies for being proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know by now that week after week, we bring in some of the most remarkable, some of the most inspirational overcomers, examples, heroes, researchers, teachers, leaders, servants, sometimes siblings and parents to share with us their life story, what they have been through, what their upbringing was like, some of the challenges they faced, what they learned, how they overcame, and ultimately what it means for you. Today, we have a very special guest with us whose purpose for being with us is a little bit less around his life story, although it is a remarkable life story, and more around this point that we have found ourselves not only right here in the United States, but to my friends who are tuning in from 75 different countries around the world, where we are right now in your own backyard. We've been told repeatedly now for the last 10 years or so that America is indeed on the brink of disaster. You've seen it, I'm sure, on television and news reports, social media, politically, at work, even in your personal lives. We're in the midst of a cold civil war, but it is indeed a civil war and the tension is mounting. A popular example of this called out frequently by the media is the uprising at the Capitol back in January. And the term civil war may seem dramatic, but there was a plan underfoot to kidnap, try, and murder a seated governor in the United States. A seated governor. So what do we do with this divisiveness? What do we do with this elevating temperature that we see around us and that many of us feel within us? On our Live Inspired podcast today, we are going to have 
a wonderful conversation on not only why the temperature is rising in the room, why the feel and the sense of anxiety and dread and depression is spreading like a pandemic around not only our nation, but nations around the world, but also on how we can alleviate that pressure, how we can move back toward the middle. That does not mean letting go of your belief systems. It does not mean necessarily letting go of your values. It does mean, though, that we end a lot more sentences with question marks than explanation points. It does mean we spend a lot more time listening, and we have an awesome expert to listen to today who's going to teach us exactly how to do that. He's my friend. His name is Peter Montoya. He is a serial entrepreneur. He is a phenomenal author of numerous books, including his most recent. It's called The Second Civil War, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation. Today, Peter's going to share fact-based statistics on what has led to the growing divide within our nation, plus meaningful tools and practical strategies that every one of us, myself included, can implement to not only make their lives better and improve their relationships, but also to heal our nation so we can invest our energies into solving our collective problems rather than obsessing over annihilating the other half the people on the other side of the aisle, the people who look or act or worship or vote differently than we do. My friends, today it's going to be a really meaningful conversation. I think you're going to really love it. You're going to want to grab a piece of paper, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, grab your old trusty pen, get ready to rock and roll. Today's conversation is a reminder that real change starts within each one of us and with the ripple effect has the power to change our communities, our nation and ultimately our world. Join me right now in welcoming today's guest. His name is Peter Montoya. Peter, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. You have a book coming out on August 3rd that you were kind enough to send my way that I opened up and I could not put down. It is called The Second Civil War, colon, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation. Talk about your interest in even beginning the research around a, a, a work like this. So I was a political science major way back when I got my bachelor's in political science. But what really interested me was that I found myself alienated from family um, and friends. I was watching my friends on social media uh, be incredibly divisive and hateful toward one another. And I started looking at all this going, what? is really going on? Why are we doing this? And I started to research what were, are the kind of the ancient reasons that we behave this way? I want to go through the ancient reasons and the current reasons and some of the benefits and also the struggles that we face right now as a collective as we have this conversation. But I was sharing with a friend the title of your book and his response was the second civil war. Man, isn't that a little dramatic? That, that was his response. Tell yeah. me what you think, John. Uh, no, your, your friend has a valid point, but let me tell you why it's not dramatic at all. He does absolutely have a valid point. Like this civil war isn't like it was back in the 1860s, where it was over a very, very clear issue. It was over uh, federal versus state powers and also over slavery. Uh, today, it's not an institutional war. I called both the Republican uh, National Committee and I called the DNC and I asked him, do you want to obliterate the other party, where our country be better without the other party. And both of them said, no, <laughs> we don't. We wanna beat them at the ballot box. We want to control power, but no, we don't wanna annihilate the other party. So this mm -hmm. second civil war is actually a social war. It's between 
uh, friends uh, and family. Uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking as I've been witnessing this the last five years. You shared a stat that blew me away because although my friends said, John, that, that title is, uh, man, it's pretty, pretty grand. One of the stats shared within your book is that one third of Americans believe that actually we are heading toward this whether it's around guns or abortion or what's taking place at the borders or what's taking place among race relations. Indeed, John and others, we are moving toward a civil war. One third of Americans have a sense that that is a reality. It's really very, very frightening. So in large part, this has been a cold civil war. Hot civil wars are fought with any form of violence, guns, bats, bombs. Those are hot civil wars. And last year we had about 35 deaths uh, in riots, uh, bombs, or in shootings related to political division last year. Uh, most historians say we need a, a thousand deaths per year to be qualified as a hot civil war. But what's not at question is we're at a cold civil war. And in a cold civil war, it's everything else but uh, violence. So it is shunning your friends. It is shaming people online. It is not giving people promotions. It's not talking to people at work. It's all the division that we're feeling human to human. It is a civil, meaning people, a civil war. Not being, it's not really civil though, obviously. Yeah. It's between people. You, you did a phenomenal job in the book on, on sharing some of the causes of this. And I'd like to just go through them as I call them out one by one. And, and you share with me kind of the, the origin story of this and why it's creating such divisiveness right now in the way we treat family members and spouses and girlfriends and boyfriends and neighbors and people we worship with and people we don't and look like and don't look like. So as I, as I went through your book, I just was taking notes on the side. And one of the things is that, that politics has become the new religion. Mm -hmm. why, why has politics of all things become our new religion? Well, we do have these uh, ancient kind of Greek archetypes in our brains. So we are always kind of looking for kind of these gods or these generals who kind of lead the good versus evil side. We oftentimes ha have the seers, which are oftentimes the talking heads, which help us know what's going to be happening in the future. Then we have uh, the pastors, which are, are the news anchors helping us distill uh, the morality of what's actually happening, how we're doing good things and they're doing bad things. And then you have the foot soldiers, uh, which are oftentimes uh, congressmen or people in the media who are actually either you know throwing uh, lethal blows against the other side or taking them and being taken out of battle. And that's happening every single day in the news. So for the last 18 months during the pandemic, we really haven't had uh, any of the usual national events that kind of unite us. So we used to have Super Bowls and we would talk about that on Monday. We'd go to Super Bowl parties. We'd have World Series. We'd have the uh, NBA uh, championships. We'd have the Oscars. We'd have these large national stories. And then we'd go to parties or go to work and we would uh, talk about those things. We even used to have Saturday Night Live and the late night talk shows, but those all went largely to the left. So it was no longer a rallying conversation anymore. And so what are we left with? We're left getting pumped full of news and news now is absolutely everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, it is obviously on your phone, on your TV, internet, uh, gas station pumps, elevators, mm -hmm. and everything has become politicized. So you can look at religion as being a spiritual practice, but the other way of defining a religion, it's a way of life. So for some people, uh, skateboarding is their way of life. For some other people, uh, it is uh, uh, their work is their way of life. And for a lot of people, 
politics has become their way of life. It is what all they think about, it's all they obsess over. And also church um, attendance dropped by 20% or so during the pandemic. And so all we're being left with is this kind of mythical battle that's being played out in real time in the news where we get to root for our side as winning and the other mm -hmm. side is being evil and losing. I've heard you refer to that almost like wrestling. When you used to watch Sunday morning wrestling and you'd have the good guys versus the bad guys and the mm -hmm. commentators and they were characters and we knew it was fake or at least most of our listeners knew it was fake. But right now we're not as convinced that indeed it is fake and that we are actually part of the show. And so I'd like to go through yeah. some of the other things I identified. You talked about 1980 being a turning point. It was the launch of the first ever 24 hour news channel. How, how did that movement because back then we were like man how are they going to talk about the weather 24 hours a day or what's taking place you know around the world 24 hours a day give me a break and yet they have and now it's everywhere so how did 1980 change our uh, the way we receive media yeah ted turner found a, a loophole in the fcc policy which allowed him to point a satellite to space and start beaming news 24 hours a day uh, around the planet and that's what everyone kind of thought you know who what, what, what are they possibly talking about? So they built these very, very large nationwide networks that basically are very, very expensive to run. And they were really made for large global news stories, things like 9-11 uh, and the Iraq war. But even when those large stories aren't happening, they still have to feed the beast. They still have to pay all their people. They have to pay for buildings and all the satellites. So what is the cheapest and easiest thing for them to do is to get two people on television, two talking heads, uh, yelling at one another about how they perceive what is happening or what will happen. So what cable news discovered is they have a very, very expensive infrastructure. And the best way, the cheapest way to keep people glued on it is to get people arguing, talking heads arguing. I would imagine many of our listeners right now are thinking, uh, as I look at my mom and dad, they're some of my greatest champions right now in the Live Inspired podcast. Yeah, but they're telling us what's going on, Peter. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, they're reporting the news. Like, this is not a bad thing to be informed of what's taking place in the world. How would you respond to them? As it turns out, the more news you concern, can consume, the more misinformed you actually are. <laughs> So there's a, a great quote that goes like this. Uh, it's better uh, to be ignorant uh, than to be misinformed. It's easier to fool somebody uh, than to convince them they have been fooled. So the more news you concerned, uh, the more calcified you become in your positions and the more likely it is that you have misinformation rolling around your heads. Uh, I stopped watching news about seven months ago in January when I was writing this book uh, and I still know what's going on. I get the broad strokes because people tell me uh, but I don't need to know every last thing that some senator said and that they came back with this and this legislation, that those little uh, micro battles really don't matter nearly as much as we think they do. Tell me about when did we shift from what most of us would consider fairly news-based reporting, whether it's Tom Brokaw or Cronkite or one, one of the names that many of our viewers and listeners would remember to primarily opinion-based reporting? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So what happened in the 1990s as more and more cable news channels came online and also with the rise of the internet is people realized they could get their news for free. And as they started getting their news for free, the major newspapers and magazines and even uh, cable news channels came back to us and said, hey, are you willing to pay for well-edited uh, ed uh, objective news? And we as public said, no. 
we're too cheap, cheap. We don't want to pay for it anymore. And with that began the rise of really trying to uh, sensationalize news to get more attention and get more eyeballs on your news so you could sell more advertising. So it was the mid 90s and we'd like to point our fingers over at the major cable channels and the internet. But the truth is we really get to blame ourselves. We were unwilling to pay for news anymore. So as I was reading your book, I was also taking notes voraciously off to the side. A lot of really cool quotes. This is one that just jumped off at me because I think it's one that most of our listeners are experiencing right now in their own lives. We may not want to admit it, but we are experiencing this. So here it is. If you hate half of your fellow Americans, and we have listeners tuning in from 75 different countries, but this is true, not only within our nation, but beyond it. If you hate half of America, you have become a pawn on someone else's chessboard. Yeah. So uh, what the political actors have learned and also what the media has learned is the best way to sell more advertising is to get more eyeballs on their screens, whether it be a social media screen and someone scrolling or it's a cable news channel. Um, and or to get more money in the coffers if you're a politician. And the best way to do that is by demonizing the other side. To scare them about the other side will get you more loyalty and you more money and you more attention at the cost of other people. So what I find really, really interesting is we're not that divided. We start talking about which team you're on, which tribe you belong to, but we're really not divided when it comes to policy. There, we largely agree. And that's why I think I, I call this in the book, the stupidest second civil war. I mean, it, it really is dumb. There is no clear dividing line. So let's talk about what is making it at least seem like the, the dividing line, which is in part the 24 hour news cycle. You said, John, I, I, I tuned out and I'm better because of it. So one of the ways that we can have a little bit less of that division going on within our communities, but also within our own minds and hearts is to tune away from that cycle. Give us some ideas on how we can do exactly that, Peter. So you can actually go cold turkey. Uh, you will actually find it kind of amusing as you find yourself kind of yearning going, gosh, it's time for me to turn the news on me. You'll find these little instincts, you'll go, those are kind of silly if you really think about it. And what I've noticed with my friends who have gone cold turkey is uh, after 30 days, they're dramatically less anxious. They just feel better. Uh, and after 60 or 90 days, they don't find the need to argue anymore with anybody. And they actually kind of rise above it. And when they see people getting involved in these political conversations, they kind of cockeyed look at it and go, boy, that's silly. I used to do that. And now I don't feel the, the, that, that hair trigger sense inside of you when someone says something that I've got to respond, I got to jump into it, I got to fight for my country. And you realize how petty and how inconsequential all those arguments really are. Mm. So that's when you go cold turkey. Some of our listeners are going to just dip a, a toe in the water. So if you're looking for some news and you're looking for reliable truth, to where do you look? Oh, geez. God. So that's a tough question these days, because as soon as I start naming networks, uh, people will automatically assign me to a given tribe. Right. So now, look, I am Peter Montoya says, I always watch Fox for my truth. You will know exactly where Montoya stands. And if he says, I watch MSNBC, you also will know where he stands. So Peter, 
choose wisely, my friend, but where, where do you look? It's a really good question. So first of all, I love, I love long form journalism. I love podcasts, by the way. I think the podcast medium is the great, greatest medium on the planet. First of all, I never listen to any medium where people are attacking or labeling other people. So if they are labeling or attacking other people, that is an automatic no to use slurs against other sides, even if it's a descriptor, like they're an extremist. Uh, that's a no-go right there if they're trying to, to um, actually uh, tarnish or attack other Americans. Uh, I only want to hear uh, people who are attacking ideas. If you want to argue ideas and attack ideas, uh, I'll do that all day long. Uh, and actually, the two wholesalers when it comes to news um, are Reuters and Associate Press. Uh, you will find the wholesale stories that CNN buys, that Fox News buys, that MSNBC buys, those are the wholesale stories that they buy, which then go feed the opinion news, which mm -hmm. generates all the controversy. So that is as close as you can get to what is we'll call truth. It's still biased. Ultimately, uh, truth is most likely written by the history of professors, but not after t 10 or 20 years and after a lot of lengthy discussion. So I, I really am a big believer that you should never believe what you think. All of my knowledge is temporary pending new information. I hold it very, very loosely. So let's talk about something else you hold very, very loosely, technology. So now as we look away from our, our 13 inch black and white television down to our six inch iPhone in our left hand, the internet and social media has certainly changed the way we not only interact with one another, but we perceive our world. In what ways has that been negative? Technology is really at its best when it helps us connect with real world friends in real world situations. That's where technology is at its best. Technology is at its worst when it's keeping us separated from the very people we're sitting right next to or lying next to um, in bed. Mm -hmm. So technology really should be used to help unite us with people out in the real world uh, and not keeping us apart. So if you're on your phone rather than connecting with a human being sitting next to you, it's you being used in the wrong place. You, you tie to a degree, Peter, propaganda and social media. And there's a quote, again, I, I love a whole lot of the quotes from within the book, but here comes another one. Propaganda is a monologue that is not looking for an answer, but an echo. Drop the mic, but after you pick it back up, what, tell me what that means. <laughs> so that, that's what's happening right now is propagandists uh, really want to instill um, fear and anger and hatred against another side, which gives them, uh, in a sense, more loyalty. Uh, I love to think uh, that at 52, um, after reading 25 books a year for the last 20 years or so and listening to thousands of hours of podcasts, I like to think of myself as being really civilized. I like to think that I have really shed my uh, ancient uh, Neanderthal genes. And the truth is I haven't. I, I'm just really a shaved down ape uh, at the end of the day with a meat computer for a brain. And uh, I am, like we all are, incredibly tribalistic. So we are naturally lean toward uh, judging other people. And I'll, I'll give you a, a simple instance. We've all been to a networking meeting, meeting or a cocktail party. We've walked in the room and started judging people. Absolutely. That person's too old. That person's too fat. This person's too rich. This person's a snob. This person, what, whatever we labeled people. Uh, and we've always called that ju judgmentalism. And what it really is, is our tribalism. So we are constantly looking and evaluating people who come into our orbit. Are they with us or are they against us? 
That is the primary question that's running in our subconscious all of the time. And I, I, I used to think that tribalism and even racism had to be taught. That was one of those quotes is out there a lot. You know, racism is, you're not born into racism, you're taught racism. The truth is, it, it actually, we probably are born that way. We are born tribalistic and even racist. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that others are actually human just like us. Uh, and they belong with us. And we got to include them um, in our tribes. So what a propagandist really wants to do is to tweak that tribalism inside you, tell you you're right for being tribalistic, telling you the other side uh, is trying to take something away from you. They will exaggerate it. They'll use slurs. They will demonize it. And we will likely believe it. So that's the propagandist's job is to get more attention for them by demonizing somebody else. So the obvious fix, one of them, is to put the phone down and flip it upside down, but that doesn't really solve the real problem here, which is an innate, born this way. Mm -hmm. So how do you learn a better way or how do you unlearn tribalism? So you got to look at all the different institutions that are in place in our country um, and what they have to do on a very, very regular basis to get us to be less tribalistic. So the, the founding principle of our country is all people, all men, all people are created equal. And we are, you know, that is stuffed into our brains. Every single day when we go to school, we pledge allegiance uh, to the flag, which is a symbol of our country, which basically says, I'm staying loyal, not only to the government and to the present, but also to all the people. Then we go to church each and every Sunday. Uh, and we're taught the golden rule, which is to love other people and to love uh, your neighbor as you do your God. We are constantly having to be pounded on this message in various different ways. You even go to kindergarten and to uh, you watch uh, Sesame Street and they talk about sharing and how all people are the same. There is a constant nonstop message that's been created at the government, media level, religious level, education level to help remind us that all people are equal and we should be kind and provide equal opportunity to all. Then the follow-up is, is it working? And how do we make it work better? Obviously, what's happened right now is the advertising model um, has really gotten very, very corrupt. So lots of media, and by the way, I'm using some broad statements here, and not all media is bad. And there's, when I say media, I mean social media, internet, uh, magazines, newspapers, books. Uh, and I like a lot of the long form stuff. There's a lot of good journalists out there. A lot of good authors these days are trying to bring people together. Uh, but a lot of the biggest players in the media have learned they can make, get more attention uh, by actually sowing hate. So they're selling outrage porn. Uh, people, we probably all either know somebody or have parents who are lined up in front of the TV starting at five o'clock to get their daily meal of outrage. Mm. Uh, and so they, and they go watch four or five hours of it. They sit there and stew with themselves. They might talk to their friends about how awful the other side is. They go to bed angry and then they get up in their cars and they go to work listening to more of the same things. And they're just getting pumped full of fear. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of media has learned is the best way to sell advertising is keep people afraid and outraged. So if you are identifying that in yourself and you're going, oh gosh, I think that might be me. Uh, you might realize that you are in a soup uh, of fear and toxicness and it might be time to pull yourself out. So I'm going to, I'm going to share another quote I wrote down. This one's not in front of me, so it's going to be a little bit off kilter, but you'll remember it. If you've ever read history and wondered why so many people were willing to do evil things, fear was probably the cause of it. We as human beings have got our, our primary directive and our primary directive is to survive. 
And so how we survive is by making sure we keep ourselves abreast of anything that might harm us or hurt the people in our tribe. So news is basically gossip, but gossip now on steroids through the internet or the airwaves. Um, and so we're constantly on guard to listen for more news that actually might fill our need to keep ourselves safe. However, when you start dissecting most news and going, okay, is this news really essential to my survival? Nope, probably not. Is it going to change how I live my day? Well, maybe the traffic and the weather do, but otherwise, most of the stuff that we see and think is newsworthy yeah. really isn't because it doesn't actually change the decisions you make on a day-to-day -day basis. It isn't really keeping you safer. It's actually making you more afraid, um, more anxious, and more likely to respond or be fall victim uh, to some really bad uh, propaganda leader. You went through and you described our belief that the, the ultimate leader, right, the president, mm -hmm. that he or she will have a dramatic influence over every single aspect of our lives. And then you right. took us all the way back to Eisenhower and you went through the Republicans, the Democrats, and shockingly showed, at least economically, how little impact they had in our lives. Could you just share a few of those stats or, or yeah. the overall yeah. context of that conversation? Uh, I will. So yes, so we kind of have this feeling that when we're voting for a president that, we're, that the future of the nation is at stake. And we believe if the wrong president gets into office, the whole country is going to go to hell in a handbasket on a very, very quick basis. However, when you look through the prism of time uh, in history, you realize that presidents actually have a very, very little effect. So we look at the average annual GDP growth by president, and most presidents range between one and 4%. Uh, and you look at the presidents and you go, there really is no rhyme or reasons. And oftentimes you see these long slopes over the course of decades that really don't have any attachment to presidents. Then you look uh, at the uh, average freedom score. <laughs> you know, we think our freedoms are be taken away. Once again, it doesn't change much between six and seven points on average on their scale is what it is. Then you look at the average unemployment rate and it ranges on average between two and 5% uh, from 1945 to 2017. Then you look at economic growth uh, and economic growth is about the same. So we look at these things and go, oh my gosh, this president is gonna be awful. It's going to be absolutely terrible. And we realize it just isn't so. So why do we care so much? You know, why do we start? I'm already dreading it. And just starting probably next year, we're going to start the next presidential cycle. And I'm already dreading it. Why do we pour billions of dollars and hundreds of hours into presidents? And the truth is because um, our president has become a avatar for our status. So when our, our president, our side is in office, well, then we have higher status and we are the good team. We are winning the power war and symbolically and psychologically, we think we're winning. So the president is really not about policy. It really isn't uh, about even ideals. It, what it really is, is, is on, do you get psychological benefit by knowing that your tribe is winning? Well, I'm glad you brought up the politics side and it's of course having an effect not only financially and on the freedom scores, but also on culture. And one of the terms you dropped several times within the book is cancel culture. Mm -hmm. I would imagine most of our listeners and viewers know exactly what cancel culture is, but would you tell us what cancel, cancel culture is? 
The cancel culture is when you, the term I like using is mob character assassination. And mob character assassination is where groups of people usually start rallying together to get somebody thrown off or fired. And we've really come to think this has been kind of a new phenomenon that's been happening yeah. in, just since 2000. But I've got stories that happened to Coward Corsell back in the 1980s, happened to Jimmy the Greek, the Dixie Chicks, uh, J.K. Rowling. Uh, it's happened both on the left and on the right. And what's happening more now is with the social media and with the algorithm, there comes an effect where somebody um, does something that can be interpreted as being wrong. Um, and then someone else, who, you know, the general public identifies that and says, hey, this is what this person did wrong. Look at how bad they are. And they actually get attention from that. So when you uh, are find a legitimate way to be grieved, you get kind of vaulted because you are the person who called out the other bad actor. Then other people start globbing onto it. Then the algorithm picks it up. And all of a sudden that instance, that story is now getting more traction. The social media companies realize, well, eyeballs are eyeballs. And as long as you're spending time on our platform, we get to sell more advertising. So it's in their interest to keep promoting those stories. And what happens with mob character assassination is there's no deliberative process. There's no time for a discussion. There's no finding out of the facts. It is just uh, you become the judge or executioner. Yeah. What we really want um, are systems of accountability, which means something happens. We then have investigators who go and investigate it and say, here's what really happened. Then we deliberate over it. And then hopefully as a society, we realize here's the moral learning we take from this. And if that person apologizes and they say, hey, I made a mistake, great. You made a mistake. We all make mistakes and we can move on without trying to take your hide out. Virtue signaling. <laughs> you know, just, some of these words showed up in double font in your book. So talk about virtue, virtue signaling. So virtue signaling is believed when people do things simply to symbolize they are part of a tribe. So I think it's tribal signaling. But the, the inference with virtual signaling is that it's insincere, that you're only doing it to fit in. So one of the questions I, I love asking people, and I ask, you know, why do you believe, why do you believe what you believe when it comes to social events or politics? Why do you believe what you believe? So it is in part due to all of the different inputs that you've had, which are family and friends and books and school. Um, and also it's all the media you consumed. Those are all absolutely true. And at the end of the day, the reason we believe what we believe is we believe to belong. So we like to think that we are all very unique, critical thinkers and that we have unique political opinions, but for most of us, and this includes myself. And what happens with tribal signaling or virtuous signaling is oftentimes we looked at you know, wearing a mask um, or you know, wearing a flag pin. Uh, and those became unfortunately virtual signaling as being to, to demonstrate what part, what tribe you belong to when it really was hopefully just a, rather a scientific matter in the first place. So I really uh, come to believe that uh, we all are always virtue signaling. It isn't insincere. We do it as part of our default mechanism uh, because in our ancient brains, if we don't belong to a tribe, expulsion equals death. <laughs> I was asking a couple of colleagues that I work with to check out the book ahead of time and also to send me a few questions that I could ask on their behalf. Oh, cool. And my friend Heather beat everybody else to the punch and she sent in this question. Please ask Peter, how do you ask questions and try to understand where the other side is coming from without offending in a climate where honest questions can get you canceled? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So, so glad she asked it. So increasingly, uh, I've stopped asking political questions uh, altogether <laughs> because they really can be used more to signal, you know, what side you're on versus who you are and what you're about. And so uh, there's a lot of really good books on questions. Uh, John Maxwell's got a fantastic book on questions. I've got a spreadsheet now where I just collect questions. And so now when I meet with somebody, rather than saying, hey, what do you think about the election? I can say, what did you learn uh, about your partner during the pandemic? <laughs> and I can get a sense of really who they are rather than what tribe they belong to. Mm. Now, if I do find a, a good thought partner, who someone who has a different opinion than mine, I usually will set the table. Here's how I set the table. Hey, I would love to ask you some questions about what you believe, but before we get into it, first of all, I want you to know the following. I have no interest in changing your mind uh, and please don't try to change my mind. Uh, and number two, I have no interest in winning. Uh, people, people debate to find out who is right. People have discussions to figure out what is right. Mm -hmm. And so I wanna have discussions to figure out what is the best policy or the best idea or another insight uh, not to make anybody wrong. The, the difference between a discussion and a debate. Yeah, we see debates on TV. And so we, that's kind of how what we model and we think we're supposed to do it that way. And that's not how we used to do it. Uh, we used to be able to have discussions around religion and politics and society and social issues and news because we were just trying to figure out what's going on, not trying to beat somebody with our, our enhanced social status because they're on the wrong side and we're on the right side. So I've been asking you a whole bunch of questions. I'm gonna ask our listeners a question and then I'll have you weigh in a little bit. But the question to our listeners is this. I hope that by the way, you're sitting down when you hear it. Are you a bigot? Are you a bigot? And let me define it for you because it shows up in Peter Montoya's book. A, a bigot is a noun. It is a person who is intolerant of or biased against dissimilar creeds, beliefs, or opinions. Someone who is irrationally and flexibly connected to a conviction, a judgment, or a faction. In particular, antagonism or prejudice against others based on their belonging to a particular group. So Peter Montoya, if that is the definition of a bigot, it probably suggests that just about all of us unfortunately are. Yeah, I think that I was heard the definition of bigotry. I assumed it meant only being racist. I think I'm a, one of these people who goes and looks up word in the dictionary. And so I pulled that word up. I looked at the definition and I realized that I was a bigot. Yeah. that I had shamed and shunned people based on their uh, religious, political, or social preferences. And it was a real hard look in the mirror. And I came to realize that bigotry is bigotry. We look at racism as being absolutely and completely taboo. Uh, if most people were to use a racial slur, we probably wouldn't talk to them ever again. However, it's become okay for us to use political slurs. We can call somebody a blank tard or an extremist or a racist or a kook or an idiot or a fool. Uh, and those words, for some reason, are okay in our society. And I'm here to say they're no better than using a racial slur. Um, every time you slur another American, even if it's in your own mind, just in your own mind, you really are helping our adversaries. The two or three biggest winners in the last five years uh, are Iran, North Korea, Russia, and China. So if you are consuming media that spends most of its time demonizing other Americans, and that's how you think too, I swear to you, you are not helping America in any way. We think that to fight for our country is to argue with somebody else and to make them wrong. The Really, the only way to change somebody else's mind 
is through a relationship. It's by getting close to them, empathizing with them, understanding their point of view and having enough time with them that you get to share yours. Uh, arguing is by far and away of the worst way. So are you trying to tell me that posting uh, that someone's wrong on, on Facebook or Twitter doesn't usually get the job done? <laughs> it does not. I mean, all that really serves to do, the only reason that when you do that is to get a bunch of people saying how right you are and making you feel good about being an extremist. <laughs> and that's the good news about being an extremist is you get to imagine that all the bad things in the world are on the other side and that you are on the good side by making them look bad. That's what extremist behavior looks like is when you post things solely so you can get people saying how great and wonderful you are and giving you likes. So I, I told you I had my, my colleagues that I get the and have the honor of working with each day to send in some questions. This one, I think, ties to what we're talking about right now. It comes in from Sandy, who works here and is awesome. And the question is, you, Peter, probably haven't experienced many of the hardships that are at the root of the Second Civil War. What have you done to educate yourself and equip yourself to offer solutions and to connect with others who are experts and have suffered some of those struggles? Oh yeah, it is, it is a really good point. Uh, I am incredibly insulated here in the suburb in Orange County, California, uh, and I haven't suffered. Uh, I haven't been on the front lines. So uh, she is absolutely right. Uh, I am a huge consumer of any kind of media that helps me understand the, the plights of other people and more importantly, empathize with other people. So uh, I probably consume about two hours of content per day. Uh, and that is either my podcast. I love documentaries, YouTube channels. My gosh, there's so much information and insight on those things, those things. Uh, and then also I ask a ton of questions. So when I get somebody on the phone, I'm not asking questions. So I have the opportunity to share my opinion. Uh, I ask questions to really understand somebody else's point of view. Uh, that's why I ask questions. Peter, how have you trained yourself to do that? The, the, what, what you're suggesting seems obvious. And it is the hardest thing in the world to lay down your core beliefs, lay down the things that you know to be true, and to truly pull up a chair closer to somebody else who thinks and acts and worships and votes and looks completely different than you, and end every sentence now with explanation points, but with question marks. Yeah. So politics has really become about power. It is not about solving problems. It is about beating the other side. Uh, and what I have really done, uh, first of all, is I now have my allegiance uh, only to the country. So uh, I no longer, uh, as of 2003, considered myself a Republican or a Democrat or a socialist or a communist or anything else, because as soon as you put one of those labels on you, it creates a bias, which right. filters information. So my loyalty is only to the United States. And my interest is not Republican versus Democrat. Democrat. What it is, is Republican and Democrat against our collective problems. Uh, I want what all Americans want. Uh, I, now this word is kind of out, of out of fashion, but I want harmony between people. I want families uh, you know, living and laughing together. I want great holidays. Uh, I want a, a booming national economy. I want full, full, um, uh, full employment. Uh, I want everyone being educated. I want what everyone else wants. And I realize I will never get there uh, by fighting my fellow Americans. We can fight ideas, but you'd stop fighting people. Mm. You end generally that chapter with this quote, and now I'm gonna move into some of the solutions so that not only you can grow in this matter, but so can we. The quote that I also wrote down is this, intolerance is to stand alone. Tolerance is to stumble separately. And inclusion 
is to walk together. So my friend, let's, let's move toward inclusion. Let's move toward walking together. Let's move toward making not only our country, but the world a far better place to live, reside, and grow in with some of the solutions. I wrote down a few. Number one, I like the way you framed it. Treat your phone like a toothbrush. <laughs> right. Use it very, very briefly and only <laughs> as a utility as you need to, and then put it back down again. My kids, that means every six months, the day before they go to the dentist. So I'm assuming we have an opportunity to maybe use our phone more frequently than that. Right. But you use it as a utility only as you need to, not as a way of filling time. Scroll less, read more. What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah. So there is a lot of scrolling and oftentimes doom scrolling where people are just actually looking at individual pieces of content for three to two seconds, three seconds, and then moving on to the next. Uh, we much, it's much better for you to be engaged in long form writing. Uh, go back and read a book again. So, and that's really hard for people uh, to get back into the habit of reading books. You go, my attention span is too short. I can't find them interesting. Yes, you have rewired your brain to constantly be looking for dopamine every two or three seconds. So if you wanna read a book again, here's how you do it. For one, one week, just read one paragraph a day. For one week, just one paragraph a day. Then the second week, you read one page a day. For the third week, you read two pages a day. For the third week, fourth week, you read three pages a day. And that's how you eventually train your brain again into being able to read long form writing like journalisms and podcasts and things like that. So you've got to rewire your brain from this dopamine fix that we've all got ourselves addicted to and needing fear or entertainment or mocking somebody else or satire uh, every couple seconds. You also encourage us to be mindful. What does that word mean to you and how can we become more mindful? Close your eyes for a second and you go to that spot behind your eyes in between your ears. That's called your conscious. Uh, it's also called the witness. And what's amazing when you go to that spot in your brain, which we all have the ability to do, uh, that witness is actually experiencing a multi-dimension movie. Uh, they can, it's a movie in which when you close your eyes, uh, you realize you can see and touch and smell. It's the most amazing movie you've ever experienced. And when you go to that spot, that, that witness there, you're being mindful. And when you have a reaction to something, you are actually witnessing yourself have a reaction to it. And that when you are more mindful, you will find yourself less reactionary, more calm, and more able to decipher what's coming in uh, versus constantly reacting and being in this constant perpetual treadmill uh, of anxiety and, ang and, and anger. You got about three more in front of you, so I'll just keep rolling through them. You, you challenge us to play a different game, and you quote from one of my favorite movies from the 80s, War Games. Mm -hmm. The only winning move is not to play. Talk about what the game is that we ought to be playing. If you want us to play a different game than the one we've been playing or the one that has played us, what is the game we ought to be playing now? The question is, is where is the front line? Where is the battlefield right now of the Second Civil War? And there is no uh, battle line. I mean, there's no forces out there fighting anywhere. So if you believe we're in a Second Civil War, where is the battlefront? And the answer is, it's in your mind. So the only way to win this war is to not to play the game. <laughs> that was the lesson from war games, which dates both of us tremendously. <laughs> but it also is the lesson with this, is you don't have to play this game. And you can choose yourself off of the battlefield anytime you choose. Uh, you realize that once you're off the battlefield, that you have been a victim of somebody else's game. And the final piece that I'd like to talk about is you challenge us to be a true patriot. And before I encourage you to tell me more about that, I'm going to read uh, how you define being patriotic. So here it is. Being patriotic is about fighting for what is in the best interest of your fellow Americans. 
not what is in your personal or partisan best interest. Yeah. So we all believe in having values, right? We have respect, honor, responsibility, integrity. We look at all these values and we go, I want to be like that. And the truth is values are a price that we pay for the benefit of somebody else. So we, what patriotism has come to believe to most people is I get what I want and I get freedom. That's not what patriotism really is. Patriotism is a cost that we pay for the benefit of other people. So uh, I will say that my definition of patriotism is completely subjective. Uh, I have uh, no more moral high ground. I don't have a monopoly on defining what patriotism is, but I laid out what I thought it means to be patriotic, at least to me, to see if it spurred some other discussion among other people. But once again, patriotism, we use the word sacrifice. And for some reason, we kind of have a wire in our head that sacrifice means dying on the battlefield. No, uh, sacrifice means stopping for red lights. It means allowing someone to go in front of you. It means wearing a mask so other people don't get infected. That's what sacrifice means. It means those little teeny prices that we pay that benefit somebody else besides ourselves. So for those listening to our conversation thinking, man, I, I'm loving it. I'm loving the idea of drawing back toward the middle and being a true patriot and, and seeing not only this country, but countries collectively shine. But Peter hasn't spoken directly to this issue that affects me, mm. whether it's uh, the color of my skin or my lack of status or the fact that I was born into poverty and can't seem to get out of it or I'm a, a gender that seems to be beat down or whatever, whatever the challenge might be for this individual, Peter, and they're passionate about it. They're passionate about the environment. They're passionate about unemployment or student loans or whatever it is they're passionate about. That is their issue. How can they move forward to make a difference in that issue while at the same time living the principles you put forward in this book? Good. That's a really important question. So I really believe in fighting for your ideas uh, and not fighting other people. So any kind of violence, uh, any kind of destruction of personal property, uh, any kind of disruption of our uh, democracy in any way, those would be the, the wrong ways. Uh, and right ways is finding the way to thread and get enough attention for your cause that it actually stands out, but doesn't isn't seen as being immoral. And that is really, really hard. And that's whenever you see a cause that kind of pulls at your heartstrings, you go, my gosh, they've done it right. That right. is the trick today is to get attention without being too uh, immoral or destructive to our democracy. But in short, uh, attack ideas, not people. That's well said. How do you feel about the trajectory of where we are heading next? What's driving this country right now is, is systems. And the systems are much more powerful than individuals, unfortunately. So I'm looking at the news media and social media. And those two things have absolutely have got to change, uh, especially on the social media side. Uh, my next tech startup is a social media platform. Uh, and I think we're going to solve the three biggest problems, uh, which are bots, uh, fake accounts and misinformation. Uh, and then we've got a system to do that. Now, the chances of our succeeding and actually getting any purchase in the marketplace is at best one out of 20, but I'm going to go down swinging to see if I can at least introduce the ideas into the marketplace to reform social media. It, it, it's really hurting us. It's not only bad for the United States, there's five or six countries around the world where it's upended their democracies and actually unleashed violence. Uh, so a lot of this is at the feet of, of social media platforms. Platforms. So as we wait for you to roll out that product, where can we learn more about you and the book that you wrote? Oh, thank you so much. Um, and you can go to petermontoya.com, petermontoya.com. And you can find my book, The Second Civil War, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation by Peter Montoya on both Amazon and also Barnes and Noble.
Peter Montoya, the author of the second Civil War. Uh, I want to thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. And thank you for your desire to draw us back together. It is the right next step. John, it was a thrill to be here. Thank you so much for having me. My friends, that is Peter Montoya. And my name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I want to thank you for joining us for this most recent Live Inspired podcast. I want to thank Peter Montoya for taking time out of his busy schedule. He's launching this book to celebrate how we can indeed come back together. And I wanted to wrap up today by sharing some of my main takeaways from this conversation. We'll keep it simple, but I want to make sure that today's conversation is actionable and meaningful in your lives. So first to quote, intolerance is to stand alone. Tolerance is to stumble separately and inclusion is to walk together. It's one of the things that have always made not only these United States, but the entire global marketplace when it operates most effectively, most successful. Inclusion is the ability to walk together. So how do we do that? How do we do that in a practical manner? Let me give you just a couple things you consider doing today as you wrap up. Are you ready for these? I just made them up. Listen, number one, treat your phone like a toothbrush. That's right, baby. Used a couple times a day. You use it. It doesn't use you. Treat your phone like a toothbrush. That's number one. Secondly, scroll less. Read more. So don't always be looking down at the phone. Sometimes grab the old-fashioned book. If you're looking for a book, let me suggest On Fire or In Awe. Also, my mom and dad's book, Overwhelming Odds. You can learn more about all of those at JohnAllerianspires.com. And I'm serious. Those are three really worthy books, In Awe, On Fire, Overwhelming Odds. Thirdly, from Peter Montoya, be mindful, be mindful, slow down, breathe, reflect, give thanks, pray, have a gratitude journal, be mindful. Fourth, play a different game. The only winning move, remember this is from Peter Montoya, the only winning move is to not play the game that we've been playing. So play a different game, step aside. And then the final one is to become a true patriot, reminding yourself that being patriotic is about fighting for what is best, not just for you, but for your fellow Americans. It's a great reminder today from a great guy who I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Peter Montoya as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. And I want to thank you for believing like I do that we are indeed better together that the foundation is indeed firm, and that the best days remain in front of us. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day, fellow citizens. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at keeleycompanies.com.